0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. Good to see all of you this morning. So thankful you're here with me. So thankful. This is Compassion Sunday. We are doing a compassion table. It's been a a long time. Actually, our, our campus has never done any work with Compassion International. It used to be something... We did a lot at our Wilson campus. But if you are interested or are curious and you have no idea what this is about, visit the table on your way out today uh, right there behind us. So um, it's, it's a way to help uh, needy children around the world. So just get, get more information. We'd love for you to partner with us in that. We're continuing this morning uh, in the book of Judges, and I'm really excited about this sermon. I hope my excitement also translates well to you this morning because I enjoyed studying it this week. It's a trying passage, but at the same time, I felt like it was so needed for me personally. So I hope it encourages you and challenges you. The title of the sermon might go ahead and make you go, hmm, I don't know if I want to hear all of this, but uh, the title is Misunderstandings About God. What ways we misunderstand Him and what ways that we... (laughs) Perhaps have let either the culture around us, maybe Hollywood, something other than Christ in the Bible Has given us some misconceptions about who God really is to us And uh, this has been the nature of humankind f- throughout history So don't, don't feel particularly guilty, just understand this, it's the human condition For us to let our environment begin to, c- to give us misconceptions about our great God And who He really is And this is what we're going to see in the story, Judges chapter 10 through a little bit of chapter 12. So the question is this, do you really do you really know God? And maybe that's what our devotional life is all about. That's really more than anything what it, it, what it means to devote and be a disciple of, of Christ Jesus is to cons- consistently be growing and knowing God better every day. And we're never going to reach the end of his depths because he is beyond. He is beyond our understanding. But there are many ways in which we have misconceptions of him because maybe we've let something else be our primary book or perspective. So I wonder this. What's your view of God? How do you see him? Is he, is he up in heaven with a gray beard wearing a black judge's robe? Maybe he's got the white wig and a gavel ready to judge you. Maybe that's the God that you have an impression of. He's just been a judging God most of your life. He seems to have... Uh, Been against you even at times. Maybe that's the impression you have of God, this great judge that is out to get you. Maybe it's the whole opposite of that. You treat him like some kind of spiritual Santa Claus, if you will, waiting patiently for your wish list. And oh, good, I've got Jonathan's wish list this morning. Let me see, let me get right on that. And some of you may, when you've treated him like that for long enough, go, I feel like he never gets my wishes. He just never, And, and you wonder what's going on there. Maybe you see him as some kind of like hippie guru up there with a all you need is love sign and God's all about love. And there's some truth to that, but it's missing some components. Maybe for some of you, Bruce Almighty comes to your mind and you think of Morgan Freeman. I don't know. He's got a great voice. I think the voice of God's even better. As we continue through Judges, we're going to see that the people of God, the people of Israel, are declining in their knowledge of him. They're beginning to treat God like the foreign gods, the pagan gods around them. They don't really know how to interact with God anymore because they're losing their way. They see him as the pagans see their gods. And let's not judge them too harshly because we are in such danger of this. And that's, I hope, not just a warning this morning, but a challenge and encouragement to you. As we get into Judges chapter 10, the Israelites are back in this downward cycle of sin and rebellion that we see again and again in Judges. And they're becoming less and less special because they're forgetting their God. Even when they cry out to God here, and they, they ask Him to rescue them, and they no longer really understand His character as we're going to see. And We often misunderstand His character, but I think after we look into this, it's going to give us fresh eyes, fresh eyes to see Him. Let's get in. I'm going to take these in three bites because if you were with us last week, I had 90-some verses, and we got through it together. I thought it was a joy. I hope, hopefully, uh, (laughs) well, if you didn't, well, you know what, you're back for some reason. I don't know why you came back, but here you are. Well, that's good news. That's good. Well, we have, it's crazy. Normally, when I have 60 verses to read, I'm like, that's a lot. But after just doing 90, I'm like, whatever. Here we go. Chapter 10. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel, Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Those are wonderful <laughs> names. Oh my goodness gracious. I couldn't help but joke this way that Tola is the son of Puah, the son of Dudu. But anyway, take that, let that stick in your brain for a little while. Here's the good news though. Abimelech, you were with us last week. Abimelech was terrible. He ruined The nation, and now after that, there arose this man named Tola, a man of Issachar. He lived at Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shemir. It seems that God gave some grace to Israel during his 23 years. Not much else is said. After him, there arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel another 22 years. This is fascinating. He had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. Wow, very consistent. It was called "Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead, and Jair died and was buried. and come on. So what we have there to start this this, this chapter is 45 years of peace, it would seem. God gave some relief. But then the people do what? they do what they do. <laughs> They do what people do today. The people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. This is the first time that the Bible has mentioned everything they begin to make idols of. there's a point to this because it would seem every one of these gods that they began to serve are the very peoples that began to oppress them. It's interesting. This is a side note, not one of my points, but you'll find that the very idols you fall prey to end up being the very things that oppress you. And that seems to be the case here. So now what's going on? Verse 7, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year for 18 years. 18 years. They oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. Listen to this. The people of Israel then cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Now that sounds pretty good. Sounds like the beginning of good repentance. Listen to the Lord. This may trouble you, but I hope it doesn't as we follow it. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Moanites? They all oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me, and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Wow. Wow. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Here's the good news, though. The people are getting it. The people of Israel said to the Lord, No, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us. Please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And Guess what? God, He became impatient over their misery. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Let's pause there in our reading. Three misunderstandings that we have about God. Here's the first. That seems painted pretty clearly here. We misunderstand God's mercy. We misunderstand his mercy. How so, you might ask. Well, look what God has already done. He reminds them of this here. He, in fact, even after Abimelech, this terrible anti-judge, if you were, God gives Israel, it seems, 45 years of peace, yet they immediately fall back into their old ways. And they come calling for him. Now, any good parent knows that if your, if your child comes calling for help, the first time you help, the second time you might help, But when they just keep doing it over and over and over again, you're like, you kind of need to learn your lesson at some point. If you keep falling off your top bunk, stop getting up there and jumping. That's not smart. Next time, I'm just going to let you fall. See? And we're not even that good of parents. We do our very best. We're not a heavenly father. He looks at us and goes, are you seriously putting your hand on the fire again? Are you really doing that? That's a stove. That's hot. That's hot, daddy. I'm going to touch it anyway he says, let let your foreign, let these other idols you've been serving, let them save you. Why? Why, why, why Why this response? Is this mercy? Yes, in a funny, funny way, this is God's mercy. Because what he wants from us is true repentance. Not some halfway, not some I'm barely there. Because his aim for us is that we would look more like Christ Jesus every day. His aim for us is way higher than our aim for ourselves. Our aim for ourselves is get me out of this problem right now. His aim is prepare Jonathan to face every trial that's coming. Prepare him in such a way that he can lift my name high even when things are extremely dark. So yeah, I'm going to let you go through this little valley. Yeah, Israel, I'm not going to save you until you finally turn from your idols. They haven't done that yet. They misunderstand his mercy. Israel did again what was evil, it says. You can pop this image up. I'm going to use this throughout the... This sermon. This is the nature of Israel. And honestly, in a way, it's our nature, although God doesn't throw us into servitude. Thank, y'all, y'all don't realize, maybe sometimes, I hope when you read something like Judges, you go, thank you for Jesus. Thank you so much for Jesus. Because otherwise, we'd be right here in this mess, in this awful mess. And yet, because of Jesus, even when we fall into sin, we know we can quickly come to his feet and he forgives We know that he will quickly restore us. Salvation is at hand. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus, the great judge, the one we're expecting through this. But this is what the people of Israel have done. They've angered him again. And so what does God do? This might challenge your worldview a little bit. It says in verse 7 that the Lord sold them in. He sold them to the Philistines and to the Ammonites. Oh, God, please don't allow these things to happen. No, 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 no. This isn't that God allowed it. God made it happen. God's teaching lessons. God's on the. He's working on the heart. He's not so very uh, concerned with their uh, comfort. He seems very concerned that they would get their acts together. So for a long time, they're in oppression. Now it's sad, but it's a sad truth. Sometimes we have to be brought low before we'll ever look up. And maybe that's something, it would be so great if we could learn it and the, and the little hard things rather than having to go to the really, really deep hard things before we look up, before we get so far down in the abyss that all we see is a tiny speck of a light at the end of that hole. But some of us are pretty hard-headed. I'm one of those. You know, I, I've heard a lot of, of lessons from other people. A lot of say, you know, guess what I learned? Guess what God taught me through this situation? For whatever reason, I want to get right in that muck with you first. I just want to make sure, oh, yeah, yeah, you weren't lying. I just did it too. Yeah, that was terrible. I don't know why I decided I needed to do that too, but I, I needed to do that. You don't have to live that way. But maybe it's because we misunderstand God's mercy sometimes. We've sinned, they say in verse 10 and then in verse 15. Guess what they finally get right? Verse 16. This is kind of a concerning thought as we, as we wrestle with our personal life, and that is, why? Why does it seem at times God is not responding to me? Why does it seem that I can't see God working? Why, why, why do I not see Him moving? I'm still in the midst of this trial and I don't see a way out. I'm praying about it daily. Perhaps, and I'm not saying this is your situation, but perhaps there's sin in the camp. Perhaps, like the nation of Israel, they're praying these wonderful prayers to God, but it takes, it takes some time before they get to verse 16 and they go... We're putting away our idols. We're putting away the junk that steals our affection from you. We're putting it aside. Now we use this term idols. I know that's not a a modern term by any stretch of the imagination. But we have them. We have these things we do that steal our affection away from God. And perhaps we have to put them aside. God is ready to speak. But he wants to know, "Are are you really after me or just comfort? Are you really after what I have to say? Let me set aside the things that steal affection from God. And then what happens? It says this very interesting phrase. This is one of the more fascinating phrases I've read in the Bible. It says that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. That's a really weird way to to say something. It's it's this idea of God has really meant what he said. I'm not going to save you this time. But then as the people began to come to a place of true repentance, he's no longer wanting to allow their misery anymore. He's ready to move forward. The New King James puts it in a very fascinating way. It says, his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. That God has gotten to this point as I'm not putting up with this anymore. I'm going to solve your issue. I'm going to solve the problem. God in his mercy often uses sorrow to lead us to repentance. This is where we misunderstand where God is at work. If you think as being a Christian means I'm going to constantly be in a place of health, I'm going to be wealthy, my family's going to be perfect. He promises none of those things. He promises he will be with you. He promises his spirit will go before you. He promises, in fact, Jesus makes some very confident promises that what I've experienced, you will likely experience persecution and some pain. But the good news is this, we have Christ. We have the Holy Spirit of God. Those who walk without, walk not only in the pains we walk in, but without hope. We will at least walk with hope and we have a purpose that is unique. And so the promises here, the way we misunderstand God is that, sure, He will absolutely lead you into a valley. And I, and, and I know there's a lot of churches, maybe even in this town, that would say, you know, if you are if you really having enough faith, if you are really walking with Christ, you are going to continue to climb mountains and prosper. But that's not the God I see in the Bible. The God of the Bible seems to lead people sometimes into valleys so that they will really get their lives in order, so that they will really look up because... Let's just be honest, we all have a hint of pride. Some of us, a big dose of pride. And we got to go, whoa, whoa, I'm way down here, God. And I don't know how to get out. Help me. 2 Corinthians 7 says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin, and it, leads, it results in salvation. There's no regret in that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. That means God allows us to experience sorrow sometimes, but for the purpose of salvation, not condemnation. Proverbs, it says of this, that God leads us to repentance to show His mercy. Look at Proverbs 28. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. Sometimes the only way God can get us to look up is to let us hit rock bottom. If you're anything like me, you let things get really awful before you look for for help. I've got a a really consistent track record of if I touch anything on a car, it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. If I just I shouldn't even open the hood. All right, I I don't know what's going on under there. If I start touching stuff, I'm going to need a savior. I mean, legitimate. I'm going to need help. when it comes to, to doctors too, I'm the same way. Like if, if stuff starts breaking on this, I'm gonna wait until it's at the point where I can't move. Now, yeah, I probably should. I probably should go to the doctor. Like I don't know. I've, I've heard that's kind of a male tendency, but it's definitely mine. Unless something is falling off, ah, I don't want to go over there. They they're just not gonna help me, you know. I like to let things go way too long. That's the story here that the people have let for 18 years. Why didn't they cry out in year one? What took them so long? 18 years of oppression before they go, Hey God, it's kind of bad down here. 18 years. But before I judge them, let me look at my own self in the mirror and go, Wow, I really let things slide for a long time. That I start to go, God, where are you? God, I can't hear your voice anymore. When I pray, where are you? And I've, I'm experiencing seasons like this at times. And then if I'll just spend some time with him for a little while, all of a sudden he starts to reveal. It starts to bring to light. Wait a minute. I'm doing some stuff that's offensive to you. And you're having difficulty speaking through that. There's so much stuff in between us that's dark. And, not, and you can't seem to shine light through it because I won't look at it and go, wait a minute. That doesn't need to be there. This isn't who I am. That's what he's teaching the people of Israel. Why did it take you 18 years? Good grief. Well, I wonder, church, some of you have lived here a little longer than 18 years on this earth. And you're not experiencing God. You're not experiencing his voice. You're not experiencing that God is an active vessel in your life. I wonder. I wonder what's going on there. How long will you let that slide? Before you start getting on your face every day saying, God, I really want to hear from you. I really want to know that you're at work in my life. I'm not, I'm not okay anymore just going through the motions. If you're not in it, I'll, I'm not going to do it. That's what we just saying. If you say jump, I'm jumping. If you're in it, I'm going. But if not, I'm not going that direction. But you have to know where he's at. 18 years, that's far too long. Get on your face and ask for his mercy. He uses sorrow He uses suffering sometimes to lead us to repentance. On the other side, sometimes we forget his love and his compassion for us. We misunderstand his mercy because we picture him like a judge who never shows love, who never shows mercy. That's not who he is. He is, in fact, ready to pour that out on you. But perhaps there's something in between. Let's read Judges chapter 11. This is a a really hard chapter. I'm not going to lie to you. This is a dark place that one of the leaders of Israel finds himself. Israel chapter 11, verse 1. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. Okay, cool. And he was the son of a prostitute. Wait a minute. Those two things don't go great together, but there you go. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead, Gilead's wife also bore him sons, And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Okay, so these are his half-brothers, born of their true mother, Gilead's wife. However, poor Jephthah was born of a mistake Gilead made. So they've driven him out. Verse 3. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, which is up in Syria. It's away from the promised land. And the worthless fellows, he he, he collected worthless fellows, and they went out with him. Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. They said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the leaders, the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead, they said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders, If you bring me home again, to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me I will be your head your leader and the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say so Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him lead or head and leader over them And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So here's what's happened. This son of a prostitute has now gone off into another foreign land, gathered together him, a gang of worthless fellows. But there's no one else in Gilead to lead the people. They know, oh, that dude could fight. Remember him? He could fight. Let's go get him. Let's go get this gang mafia boss and bring him back to town. Good idea. Good idea. And he's like, well, if I come back, I'm in charge. Okay, we're down with that. All right, here we go. Verse 12. Now Jephthah starts pretty good here. He sends messengers to the king of the Ammonites and he says this. What do you have against me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah. Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok to the Jordan. Now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and he said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness of the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through the land. The king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, and he would not consent, so Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and and around the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is the land that's in question here. But they did not enter the territory of Moab for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. So Israel sent messengers to Sahon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please, just just let us pass through your land to our country. They're trying to cross the Jordan, get into the promised land. But what? Verse 20. Sahon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sahon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jehaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sahon and all of his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites and inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok from the wilderness of the Jordan. That's what, this is the land in question. Verse 23, So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. And are you now to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess. And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and Aror uh, and its villages and in all the cities that are in the banks of the Arnon, 300 years we've lived here. Why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, what a great statement. The Lord is judge. Decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. So here's what's happening here. Let me pause in my reading. Here's what's occurring in this part, and it is a lot. Basically, Jephthah is giving the king of the Ammonites a history lesson. I just want you to look back. This is in the book of Joshua well, actually, this is in the, in the book of the Torah coming into Joshua. This is what's happening. We tried to pass through the land peaceably. We tried to get across the Jordan into the promised land. But guess what happened? This Amorite king fought against us, and we whooped him and took his land. Guess what you aren't. You aren't Amorites. Why are you here? So what's occurring here is now the Ammonites are on the outside claiming land that was never theirs. And it's 300 years later. For 300 years, we've... Did y'all know America hasn't existed for 300 years? Longer than our country has existed, this people have lived in this land in question. Now the Ammonites are showing up. This was always ours, and we want it back. <laughs> Jeff was like, uh uh-uh, not going to happen. So we're at an impasse. Nobody will come peaceably. I give it to Jephthah. He, he makes a great argument. And he tries to have peace, but no, it doesn't happen. So verse 29, this is where things get tragic. In my Bible, in fact, it says Jephthah's tragic vow. Verse 29, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. He's coming to war. Verse 30, though. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's. Okay, that's not bad, but this part. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Meneth, twenty cities as far as Abel-Keremim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to the home, to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him. With tambourines and with dancing, she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. This is a brave little girl. She says to her father, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains. This is so weird. Oh, That I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed her and her companions, and she wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year after year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. This is horrible, this last piece. And here's why. Because the people, and sometimes we, misunderstand God's grace. Misunderstand God's grace. Now, I'm not going to spend nearly as much time on the first half of this chapter because I think it's the last half that was the narrator's intent here to really help us zoom in on. Here's what Jephthah does. He's some crime boss. He's some mafia leader. They bring him back in. He is an incredible warrior, and he's got him a little band of misfits. And they are pretty good. They're, They're good at war. And he tries to be strategic. He tries to get the Ammonites to give it uh, without bloodshed. They won't do it. So we're going to war. And now what does he do? He does the thing that sometimes we do and we shouldn't. And that is to make deals with God. This isn't the God we serve. I just want you all to understand this. We don't make those kind of vows. In fact, Jesus argues for this. I may have this in my notes. Let's see. Well, I'll just paraphrase it. I don't have it in my notes. But he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Just do what you say you're going to do. You don't need to make these kinds of vows. Now, we make one vow that's really important to our husbands and to our wives, right? Before God. But this is a covenant. God makes those kinds of things. He covenants with Abraham. He covenants with us through Jesus. And we covenant with one another in marriage. But we don't make these kind of deals. God, if you'll do this, I'll do this. That's not God. God. It's not how he works. And it's, first of all, I'm amazed that God even blesses Jephthah here. We have to understand God has truly become impatient with the Israelites' misery to use a guy that's broken like Jephthah. I I could make this argument throughout the book of Judges. There's just not a lot of good men. There's just not a lot to work with. I've heard many people argue for this, in fact, that God kind of used who, who he had available. Jephthah is an interesting character that he brings to save the people. And Jephthah makes a deal, a terrible deal, and a deal that misunderstands God's grace in so many ways. First of all, God is already working through him to save his people. We don't have to make those deals. If God has called you, my friend, if God has called you to do something great for him, or if God has just called you to something, anything. He's, he's called you to be a husband, be a father, to be, to be a wife, to be, uh, to be a, a good worker at this place. He's called you to this profession. You know it was God that was in it. You don't have to say, God, if you'll, if you'll make me successful in this. No, he already called you to it. And you don't really know what success is supposed to look like anyway. So just say, God, I'm yours. Send me where you would send me. God, you want me to go fight the Ammonites? It's a yes from me. If you want me to go down to my own demise, then I'm yours either way. Jephthah thinks he makes deals. It's not God's grace. Not only that, but he misunderstands the way in which God wants to be worshipped. This seems really foreign to us. I understand. This seems foreign to us, although I can make some arguments here in a minute that might make you incredibly uncomfortable. But it's the culture of Jephthah's day that you worship pagan gods with human sacrifice. That's the nature of his culture. That sounds really horrible and really dark unless you consider abortion, but... And I don't know what God that is we're worshiping with that awful thing we do, but but this is what they do. They do these human sacrifices, and this is the way that you can hear from God is to offer a servant or to to offer this human saying. You know what God has strictly forbidden that. You can go into Deuteronomy. There's several places where it's God has forbidden this type of sacrifice. It's not what He wants. And some have argued this way, and I think this is a foolish argument. They say, well, maybe Jephthah meant whatever comes out, maybe it'll be a goat that's going to come running out of my house. Maybe it'll be some livestock. But here's the problem. The Hebrew there most likely is translated, whosoever should come out. That's scary. That means Jephthah, it would seem intended human sacrifice. God, you give me the victory, I will sacrifice to you. That's dark. I can tell you what he wasn't hoping for. His daughter, his one and only daughter, to come out, Daddy, you did it, you won. How horrible that must have felt. Tambourines and singing, God, God, did it. Look what, Jephthah's back. Thanks, Dad. What was he hoping for? A servant? Maybe he wasn't getting along with his wife. Maybe the mother-in-law was staying over. I don't know. Terrible deal. Terrible idea. Because he misunderstands the way in which God desires to be worshipped. But here's another thought, and this is the one that Spurgeon really spent time on it, and y'all know I'm a big fan of his. I love to study his works. And he said, you know, even after making the deal, what was it in Jephthah that thought he couldn't break such a vow? This was never a vow that God wanted. This is not how God desires to be worshipped. And did you know, even when you screw up and say, you know, God, I'm going to go do this thing in your name, and God never called you to do it, and you do it anyway, you know, he'll still receive you back. You don't have to just go, go, go. You know, ruin yourself on some altar. Say, I'm never going to be worthy. I can't serve you anymore. No, God will welcome you back. Jephthah could have said, God, I made a huge mistake. Should have never offered you this sacrifice. Will you forgive me? Instead of sacrificing his daughter, which God did not ask for. we misunderstands God's grace. Did you, understand, did you know that God will receive you back? No matter what the tragedy, no matter what you've said with your mouth, you're not so far gone. There's just, there doesn't exist a person who's so far gone that God can't save. I feel like the people, the criminals on the cross beside Jesus is evidence of that. If he can save them in that moment, he can save you no matter what you've said or vowed or done. Ephesians 2, it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not the result of works so that no one may boast. You don't get to take matters into your own hands. He's in charge. And your faith, your your salvation is a gift of his. It's not your work. It is his love. Saul, I would argue, makes an extremely similar vow. Although God protects his son, Jonathan. Saul makes this crazy vow, and this is in 1 Samuel 14. He says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. They're at war, they're fighting the Philistines, and he says, If anybody eats anything, I'm gonna kill them. Jonathan, his very own son, doesn't hear this word. He's instead off somewhere else kicking butt. Because Jonathan, I'm kind of a fan of the name, I'm just gonna put that out there, but he's a cool dude in the Bible. And he's out there working it. And somebody finally brings the vow to him as Jonathan's eating honey. And he's like, you know, your dad said you shouldn't be eating nothing. He's going to kill you. He said, well, that's kind of dumb. Look look how this honey brightens my spirits. Look how I'm the one kicking butt. And you guys are like, oh, because you need something to eat. You're starving. You're thirsty. It's a foolish vow. The people actually protect Jonathan. Saul was ready to do it. Ready to kill his own son who basically won him the victory. The people of Jephthah's day, though, were far farther immersed in their paganism than this was allowed. It's easy to sit in judgment over, over Jephthah, but let's just be honest with ourselves. We sometimes are so immersed in this culture around us that we forget God is a gracious God. He, he desires to be worshipped the way he has prescribed, not the way we seem fit or deem fit. And he can show us grace in spite of our brokenness. We don't have to constantly say, you know, God, I'm unworthy. No. Of course you're unworthy. He receives you anyway because of his grace. Let's read. I'm going to read just a few verses of chapter 12 because this chapter begins to get into a story that we're more familiar with, and that's the story of Samson. We're not going to get into that until next week. Let's finish Jephthah's story. The men of Ephraim, from verse 1 were called to arms. They crossed the Zephon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? <laughs> Well, we're going to burn your house over you with fire. That's jacked up. Let's just be honest. That's a terrible response. You came over here and you helped drive these people out. We're going to kill you. What? And Jephthah says to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. Look, we asked you to come over. You didn't come. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life into my own hand. And I crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? And Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. This is sad. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim. You Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh, and the Gileadites captured the fords, that's the crossings of the Jordan, against the Ephraimites. And when, you, when any of those fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, they tried to pass back over the crossings to escape, to run away. The men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said, no, 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 they said to him, well, then say Shibboleth. This is weird, y'all, this is cool. And he said, Sibboleth, <clears throat> for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. That is a lot. It's probably their, almost their entire law. Jephthah then judged Israel six years. Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in the city of Gilead. God bless the reading of his word today. Amen. What in the world are we supposed to do with this last piece? Here, here's what came to me this week, and I think this is really good. This is definitely from the Spirit of God because I wouldn't have thought of this. We misunderstand God's salvation. And here's what I mean. Here's how this story points to that. Ephraim is beginning to have a trouble. If you remember from last week, they came to Gideon as well saying, hey, why didn't you invite us to do more with you? Because they want glory for themselves. They want to take pride that Ephraim, we're the strongest tribe We no longer care about unity among peoples. We want people to know Ephraim's the one you don't mess with. Self-glory. And you know what they're so mad about? That Jephthah, the son of a prostitute, the son of a Gileadite, is the one who rescued them. They do not want that. What do people reject? Sure, people want salvation. They want it. They want rescue. They want to be saved. They just don't like this Jesus. That's, I think, the moral of this little nugget of story is what, how are we like Ephraim? Well, sometimes we're like them when we get mad that God saves us in the way he deems fit and he sees as right. And we're like, but I wanted it to go a different way than that. I wanted to, to be involved. I wanted to get some of the glory. I wanted to know at the end of the day, you know what? I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. and I, That's not the salvation of God at all. Salvation of God is you could never, ever fix this. ever. But I did. And I sent a rescuer. You might not like Jephthah. You might not like this Jesus because what it implies is that you couldn't do it. Ephraim has a problem with that. And then some fascinating things happen in this text. What in the world is this shibboleth, sibboleth thing? I had so much fun thinking about that this week. The word there should be pronounced in Hebrew shibboleth. What's happened? Well, we already know, 300 or so years have passed. They've been in the promised land for a long time now. Let's just consider for a fact that there's, there's some of you northerners who have come down here, and we welcome you, we love you, but let's just be honest, you don't know how to say y'all right. <laughs> so we say, you could be crossing the fords of our Jordan, and be like, y'all say y'all, and you'd be like, you guys, or you all, or no, kill him, hate hey, or you don't know what barbecue is, okay? You, you misunderstand barbecue, or you think a toboggan is something you ride. You wear that on your head. You wear that on your head. So 42,000 Yankees go down. That's, I mean, that's what, that's what we're dealing with here. They cross the Jordan. They don't say the same words anymore. This isn't strange. Not really. I mean, it seems funny in the text, but we, we really get this. We speak different down here in the South. So God allows this wild thing to happen. This is a little piece of judgment on the nation of Ephraim who has been growing in their pride and their self-glorification. They no longer want to see God's rescue anywhere else. We're fine if God will rescue us from Ephraim, but if it comes from any other source, we're not comfortable with that. Isaiah prophesied this very thing about Jesus. We see, in fact, that Jephthah is kind of a, a, an archetype. He's certainly an imperfect and a broken one. But Isaiah 53 says he was despised, he was rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. This is the way that people react to their Savior who has already done it. That's that's what's so cool about this story. Jephthah has already won. Then Ephraim shows up and says... You know, you you called us earlier and we we didn't get the message, okay? But you've already won the victory and we're pretty mad about it that you didn't get us, you know, to do more, so we're going to burn your house on top of your head. Wow. This is the way that people react to Christ. This is the way sometimes we react to the way in which God saves us. Not necessarily Jesus, but the way in which He rescues us from certain situations. We think, I just don't like the way you did that, God. We misunderstand his salvation. Acts chapter 4, it says only Jesus has the power to save. His name is the only one in all the world that can save anyone. Look, it's not that people don't want to be saved. It's just they want some credit. We simply love (laughs) self-helps. We love thinking that we can DIY our life. We love thinking that maybe there's something we can do. But God has fully done it. And if he's fully done it, then he's completely sovereign. Then he's completely in command. And this is what people reject. Christian, this morning, I would urge you to think about something on this. Yes, you haven't rejected the Savior Jesus, but I wonder if you reject his means of work in your life sometimes. That there's some situation maybe you're going through right now, or maybe you have gone through and you're angry with God about it. Or, or frustrated that he hasn't moved in the way you've, you've desired him to move, you, you, you'll, you'll say something, and, and I'm guilty of this. I'm not judging you. This is who we are. This is the condition that we find ourselves is that we would say, God, I want you to save me from this situation, but please save me my way. Please. And the problem with that is if we could save our, if we could save our way, we would have done it already. If my way actually worked, I wouldn't have needed the Savior at all. So he ends up saving me a way that hurt some. But then if I can have godly perspective, I look back and go, there was no other way you were going to get me out of that mindset. There was no other way you were going to rescue me from that broken mindset, that that way of life that was so foreign to you, you had to take me through a valley. Let's not forget the stories of the Bible (laughs) that Israel... Israel gets pulled out of Egypt after hundreds of years of slavery. God allowed that. Why? Because the people were already getting away from him. He allows that and then he, he, he does the plagues. It's all this miraculous stuff. They get to the Red Sea and they begin to moan and gripe because now they're catching up to us. God rescues them by crossing the sea and pouring the water back over their adversaries. Now what happens? They get stuck in the wilderness For generations, generations of people wandering the desert, I don't know. Sometimes I look at my own life and go, maybe I just complain too much. Let's just be honest. Maybe I complain too much because guess what? I'm not wandering a desert somewhere. Although I'd like to try bread, I imagine manna would get old. I guess the, the people seem to be getting tired of it if you read this story. Bread every day, no hot showers. Man, I really like a good hot shower. This is what God does. They get stuck in the wilderness. There's these three Hebrew boys who get thrown into a furnace. Now you would think, these boys were probably thinking to themselves, God, please save us. They didn't think God would go ahead and let them go in the fire first. How are you going to save us by putting us in the fire? Well, because I can break the laws of physics because I wrote them. I made them. Well, I didn't see that coming. So you're telling me sometimes God will throw us right into the fire? Absolutely but he's with us there was a fourth man in there so there was no way god for you to prevent daniel from actually having to spend the night in the lions den i got that would freak me out so bad that's a big animal i'd be scared out of my out of my wits he didn't stop it from happening he just closed their mouths shut god you're funny you got a way of doing things that I wouldn't expect. My way would be, let's just not go in the line's den at all. Let's just skip that. No, that's not what he does with his people, church. Understand this. He loves you, and he wants to do something amazing in you and through you, and sometimes it's going to be scary and hard. The apostles, Paul, they get thrown in prison again and again and again. They get in such trouble. God doesn't prevent that stuff. Why? Because he saves us his way. And then he gets so much more glory and we become more like Jesus. And that was the part that we weren't asking for, but he gave it anyway. He saves us and changes us at the same time. Receive that today. Whatever you're going through, God, where are you moving in this? Help me to not resist where you're leading me through a valley so that I might understand and get the lesson you're trying to teach so that tomorrow I look more like Jesus than I do today. I'm no longer going to fight the fact that I'm going through this trouble. Perhaps this trouble is from you. God, show me, give me insight as I go through it. These stories and judges, they're hard to hear. But they give us this like unvarnished view of the sinfulness of humanity. They reveal something about us. And that is we misunderstand God sometimes, but we don't have to. And the person of Jesus makes it so clear. His mercy, His grace, His salvation, He is yours there's no reason to run let's pray now together church heavenly father we ask now that you would show us that you would show us something so mighty your work's already in our life this is something we often miss we have to admit that we simply miss where you're already at work And it causes us to look at our troubles. It causes us to look at the places where we're suffering most. The arguments we've had with people. The the bad health we're suffering. The the, the bad decisions we've made in the past that we can't seem to move forward from. All of these things make us start to go, well, I I don't see a way out. I, I don't know what this brokenness is for. And God, I just pray today in your people, in this church, you would reveal to individuals. Reveal to them right now, God, where you're at work in spite of their brokenness, in spite of their poor health, in spite of their anxiety, in spite of the thing that's got them so stuck right now, that God, you're working actually right in the middle of that. And your mercy is already beginning to pour out. Your grace has already poured out. Your salvation has already been given. And even in this trying circumstance, you're working a way forward. A way to salvation. And we may not understand it. We may not even like it. But God help us to. With every passing moment and every passing day. To see where you're working. So that we can get behind what you're doing. And no longer resist your grace. And your mercy. And your means. To salvation. Dear friend. Maybe you showed up today. And you're recognizing this very very scary truth. That you. This, this idea of God's grace and mercy, this salvation, this, this Jesus. Maybe you haven't outright rejected Him in the past, but you've certainly never said yes. Maybe you're not exactly like the Ephraimites in this story, but you're close. Maybe for a season of your life you've just not liked the idea that God had to save you. Or maybe you don't like the idea that if He did to save you, if He is the one responsible, then He is indeed the Lord. And he's in charge. But maybe I pray this morning. I pray today you're willing to say, Jesus, I need you. You're my Savior and you're my Lord. If that's you today, pray with me simply this. As it says in Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Pray this simple prayer with me, my friend. Jesus, I recognize that I need a Savior. I believe... You died on the cross for my sin. That you rose from the grave. That God raised you up. I believe those things today and I no longer reject you as my Savior. I receive you as my Savior and Lord today and I'm asking now. Would you reveal to me your mercy? Show me your grace at work, your salvation at work in my life. Help me to begin to see it. And I pray that over all of your people, Lord Jesus. Help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear. God, where you're already on the move in our life, help us to receive you, your grace, your mercy, even in our valleys, especially on our mountaintops, that we won't forget you, but we'll draw closer. We love you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.